We're going to get back into our exploration mode. You guys, have you seen that for a while? You haven't seen that slide for a while. Exploring Ephesians. We're getting back today to our exploration of Ephesians. We, when we made this graphic, we made it on purpose because this is a lot what e- the book, reading, going through the book of Ephesians is like. It's like a, an upward trek into the, really the heights of, of biblical theology. Of, of, a lot of people say it's the, the, the peak of Pauline theology. And so it is kind of like an adventure we're going on. We started the adventure last year in 2015. And some of you think we did a lot more than we really did. I counted 19 sermons. 19 sermons got us up through chapter 3. And so we're there, and so we're halfway through the book about, and it might not take 19 more to get all the way through. It might take more, I'm not exactly sure. But we're back into into putting our boots on, starting our trek back up the mountain, um, looking at what the book of Ephesians has to teach us. Um, And and I think that after six months, we we, we did it for about half a year, and then we we took six months because I just felt there's other things we were supposed to do. And so we took a little six-month hiatus in the different stuff. And now it's back to, to, to uh, getting into this book. And um, I think there's probably a few things I need to remind you about in order to get back in. Because I gave you a quiz today about what we learned in Ephesians. We might not do so well because it's been quite a while. And so let me remind you of a few things about the book of Ephesians that really do um, affect how we view it. First thing we understand is that Ephesians is considered, and I said this, considered by many the climax of the New Testament. But there's a reason why I want to mention that, um, why they believe that. Most of the New Testament books that you read are written to address a situation or an issue in a particular place. So instance, you, you, for instance, you look at the book of the First and Second Corinthians. First and Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the people at Corinth because they got problems going on. First Corinthians, the first letter, is because they were a bunch of charismaniacs. They would believe in the gifts of the Spirit, which is cool, but guess what? They were totally out of control. They were nuts. And it even says that. He says, people think you're crazy. And so he writes a whole thing, a whole letter to them, correcting their problems. They had sexual immorality going on, all this stuff. But, so what we get is we get you know, divinely inspired letter from Paul to a group of people who were having problems, but we didn't live in that place. So we've got to kind of try to assume what's going on there and make some, make some connections and say, okay, this was going on, so this is why he addressed it this way. And that's fine and good, but Ephesians is different. Ephesians, he's writing this letter, this, this, this is what it is, the personal letter, um, to the people that he loves, and we'll talk about that in a second, but he's writing it to them just to really talk about um, how wonderful it is to be a Christian. That's really what Ephesians is about. He used this word, this term, over and over and over, in Christ. Matter of fact, if you want to have a really good, uh, if you question it all, let me say it this way, if you question it all, the necessity of Christianity, which the world is doing all the time now. Um, I was just with a group of pastors that, honestly, I finally said to them, I said, do you understand we're Christians? We're Christians, right? We're Christian people. We're not universalists. We believe Jesus is important. And they wouldn't really answer me because they don't really believe Jesus is important. Read Ephesians. Over and over, Paul says this. The answer is about being in Christ. It's not just being, being spiritual. It's in Christ. So Paul writes to these people about what life in Christ is really supposed to be about. 
And so, so that's why it becomes this great where he uses, he stretches language even beyond its borders to try to explore, explain things. So you'll like, he'll go over and over and over trying to explain something using every superlative he can to try to explain different things in the book because he's trying to use language to describe the, the, this incredibleness of living in Christ. And he's trying to encourage these people. Um, so, so, so that's the first thing. That's what the book's written, you know, why, why it's written. And then it's important to remember who it's written to. It's written to Christians, and that's really important because the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to have something different to say to us if we know Jesus already and we're already in Christ than he's going to have to say to somebody he's trying to convince that they ought to be in Christ, right? So this message written is written to Christians, so it applies very directly to any of us who say, I'm in Christ, so we can... We can uh, um, receive it as this is what the scripture says to a believer and we also find out that this was written by paul to christian people in the city of ephesus um but they're not just any people they're people he really knew and loved because he had been the church planter that planted the church he's writing to he had been their pastor he'd been the planter he'd been their pastor and he lived there and ministered to this group of people for three years the longest time he ever spent just with one church was this church. So these people are passionate on his heart and his mind, and so he's writing to Christian people that he dearly loves, so we can say this about the book. It's pastoral, meaning it's full of love and guidance to help individuals like you and me learn how to live and how to walk a Christian life. It's, just, it's not like just necessarily um, just theoretical. It's very pastoral, very practical in how we can live our Christian lives. Another thing about the writing of the book that's important is where the people lived. Just to say, oh, they lived in Ephesus, well, what does that mean to us? Ephesus was a really tough place to be a Christian. Ephesus was a large city for the day, about 300,000 people in population, and it was the pagan worship headquarters of the world. Ephesus at the time. Ephesus was the heart of pagan worship. It had this incredible temple. Matter of fact, the temple was considered um, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These gigantic 197 columns, these huge, beautiful columns. Um, this gigantic temple dedicated to the worship of, of Artemis, or, or called uh, Diana, same Greek and Hebrew. So, so this temple of Diana. Um, or Artemis that, that was there. And all the city revolved around the worship of this goddess. Matter of fact, it was so much the center of the city that in Acts chapter 19, and we won't look at that today, but just mention in Acts chapter 19, there's a riot in Ephesus. And the reason there's a riot that Acts 19 records, remember Acts is the history book of the early church, and so it's talking when, when, when ministry's going on there in Ephesus, while Paul's there, Paul had just left actually, a riot occurs and the reason a riot occurred, riot occurred was because this guy named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made shrines and, and objects of worship for the temple of Artemis, he was getting mad. Him and all those other silversmiths got mad. You know why? Because so many people were coming to Jesus in this really tough place that they were cutting into their business. Acts 19 says, and it's interesting because they didn't just worship, uh, they didn't just bow down before shrines, they had a, like a whole magical system associated with it because it says they burned their magic books in Acts 19 and they were burning all their stuff and they stopped buying new stuff from these guys who were profiting off the worship of, of this false god in Ephesus. And so they started chanting, this basically... This, you know, that we, this is Ephesus, the city of the great God. This is Ephesus. And they started a riot and tried to kill these guys. 
And so this was a tough place to be a Christian. It was a tough place, a pagan stronghold that you go in there and they're chanting, they're going to kill you. They're chanting, we worship this God, we worship this God. And you're going, but let me tell you about a different God. And they're going, oh, we'll kill you instead. That's the kind of environment these people are living in. That was Ephesus. It was a tough place to be a Christian. So Paul writes this wonderful letter to encourage these Christians to strengthen them and to challenge them to keep growing in Christ. And these things that we talked about are the reasons why it's such a great book for us to spend so much time with, maybe 40 weeks when we're done. Because we are Christians and we need to be encouraged and challenged. You ever feel like you need to be encouraged and challenged? I do. So Paul's doing it for them. He's also doing it for us. We are Christians who also live in what can be at times a challenging place. Now, we don't have too many people building shrines and chanting, but I'm telling you this, it's getting harder and harder to live an openly Christian life um, in our society. You can't even figure out what bathrooms to go into anymore. You know, so I mean, this world's getting weird. And becoming overtly Christian is getting more challenging. And so the things that Paul has had to say to them 2,000 years ago are things that are also really important to us today. So are you ready? Your boots are on? You're ready to take the next step in exploring Ephesians? Grab your Bible. If you don't have one, you're visiting, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You're welcome to take one of those if you don't own one. So chapter 3 of Ephesians. I'm going to read a section. We're actually going to come back to the same section next week too. But chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. I said that just for Debbie because she's going to count how many weeks it's going to take. Chapter 14. I love you. Chapter 14. Uh, chapter, chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, so that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So, why did we choose this section? Why did I start where I started and stop where I stopped in Ephesians 3? What do we have here? What we have, if you read it closely, is we have a prayer and in fact, it's the second time in the book of Ephesians that Paul has recorded a prayer he's praying for people. And what we have here is a prayer from the Apostle Paul for Christians at Ephesus, and therefore for all Christians, really. And let's put it in context. Why is he praying for them? If you'd go back and read the verses, the chapters earlier, you'd find he had just finished writing about how the church, and remember, the church was a brand new creation when Paul's writing. There never had been anything called the church before. It was Christianity launched what's called the church. And he's one of the first guys launching it. And so he had just finished writing about how this new thing called the church is this wonderful creation of God. It was God's plan in which all people are to be unified. He's saying that's why the church exists, to, to bring humanity together. He says everyone. And he talks about the two greatest um, people who groups of people who hate each other, Jews and Gentiles. And he says the church brings everybody, even Jews and Gentiles, together. That The church reveals, he says, an age-old mystery that all people 
can come to know God, that it's not just a Jewish thing, that's what the Jewish people thought, it wasn't just a Jewish thing, and that as Christians, we have now become this new, unified group of people. He actually says we become a brand new race of people. So just after writing that, saying the church is this awesome thing, it's this new revelation of God, he launches into a prayer. And he says this, look at he says, for this reason, he's saying, because of what went on, for this reason, because of this great revelation about the church, I now want to pray for the church. So he says this, what? He says, so I bow my knees and I ask that God would grant certain things to those who are in the church. Now before we look at any particulars of what he specifically prays for, I want to do something um, today, something that I think will help us see the big picture of what Paul's got, because I think it's super important. The big picture of what he's trying to get at for these Christian people that he loves. So let's do this. I'm going to read the text again. Matter of fact, I'm going to read it two times. But I'm going to read it from a different translation. I'm going to read it from the message translation that Eugene Peterson wrote. And this is what I want you to do. If you're comfortable, you don't have to do this, but if you're comfortable, I'm going to read it once. I'm going to pause. I'm going to read it again. I want you to close your eyes. But there's a reason for it. Not because I'm going to do anything weird. I'm going to do it because I want you to try to concentrate and listen for the overarching theme that Paul's praying for. Because he says all these different things, it could be easy to miss the big picture. Think, I want you to be saying, spiritually sensitive, what is the main point of Paul's prayer for Christians in this prayer? Okay, So I'm going to read this from the message translation, verses 14 to 19. So if you want, close your eyes and hear what it says. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask Him to strengthen you by His Spirit. Not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite Him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Just wait a moment. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask Him to strengthen you by His Spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength, that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite Him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimension of dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Here's my question. You can open your eyes. What did you hear or see? What's the big overarching? Is there a word? 
the big overarching theme that he's praying for. Think about it. I ask it rhetorically. Think about what it might be. As I step back and listen, what I hear the Apostle Paul praying for is this one word, more. That's what I hear the Apostle Paul praying for. Let me explain. Let's remember he's praying for Christian people here. People who already know Jesus. They're the people he led into the kingdom and he pastored. They are saved. They are forgiven. They are in Christ. Yet Paul prays for more. That What's he say? That they would have more inner strength through the Holy Spirit, more experience and knowledge of his love. He's saying to these Christians that he loves that there is more to Christianity than just getting in. There's more to Christianity than just getting saved and getting your name on a roster of a church. There's more to Christianity than just saying, My, no, I'm, I'm counted among that group of people over in that church in Ephesus, and I'm a follower of Jesus, and I, and I know Paul. That there is a life in Christ, and that's Paul's key, a life in Christ that is richer, and as he says here, it is fuller, full of the fullness of God. That's how he describes it here. There is more available, and he says it this way, through the Holy Spirit. Paul here reminds me, and the reason I'm bringing this up, and we're going to look at it in a second, is because of the translation we read with Eugene Peterson. Paul here reminds me of, of John in the message that he wrote to the city of Laodicea, the church of Laodicea, in the book of Revelation. Um, in fact, Peterson uses terminology in his translation that's very similar to John's terminology in the message that he says to that group of Christians in a different time, in a different city. In Revelation chapter 3, John writes um, to Christian people a similar message that there is more. And I want us to get this today because I think repetition is for emphasis. So grab your Bibles and look at something in a way that you maybe have never looked at before because generally we look at this as a very condemning message and I don't think it's meant to be. Revelation chapter 3, and you're going to listen for the same message. Listen, he's basically a different, a different author, author to a different group of people but inspired by the same Holy Spirit basically saying the same overarching message. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We're going to read down to verse 22. And remember, you have a red-letter Bible. Any of you like me, you have a red-letter Bible? Okay, red-letter simply means that, that do your best to understand what were supposed to be directly the words by, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from God himself, through, G, from G, through Jesus. So this is saying that the Lord himself spoke this message through an angel to this church, and then it was recorded by John. So verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen and the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this. So he's describing himself. He says, this is what I say to the city. Verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Otherwise you're really deceived about yourself spiritually. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich 
and white garments so that you may be you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom i love i reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent verse 20 behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I have also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at what we find here. A message to a church, to Christian people. And in this case, they have been, according to what we're reading here, reading into it, they have been drifting from a solid relationship with Jesus. Evidently, according to what the Spirit's saying here, through the, through the inspiration through John, evidently they had become rich in the things of the world. They had been really satisfied. Their 401ks were full. They had no need of nothing. They had become rich um, in the things of the world, but poor in their relationship with Jesus. Now, is it possible to become rich in the things of the world and rich in relationship with Jesus? Absolutely, yes. But oftentimes it doesn't work that way. Evidently, they had become rich in the things of the world and their pursuit after that had helped them, had led them to become poor in their relationship with Jesus. So John describes this as being lukewarm. He says not being hot, for God, not being cold for God, just being lukewarm. And God said, lukewarm coffee, you spit it out. Notice, John never says the people are not Christians. In fact, he says because he loves them, he's reproving or correcting them, telling them to get things straight in their spiritual lives so that everything will be better. He says, repent which means change your mind and change your direction of your life. Repent and get better. Now, it's what he says next in the verse, verse 20, that I really want us to notice today. Look at verse 20. Behold, because it sounds just exactly like Peterson um, described it in Ephesians. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. This is an invitation to more. Too often, this verse has been misquoted and misused. Maybe by some of us. Often people use this as an invitation for someone to come to Jesus for salvation. They say, listen, Jesus is standing at your heart door and he's knocking right now. Open him up. And that might be true, but verse 20 of the book of Revelation chapter 3 has nothing to do with that. He's writing to Christian people in the church in that city who have drifted. Who he's saying, listen, um, you have traded being rich and stuff in the world and you become poor spiritually. He's saying it's time to change direction, repent, get back in the right direction. So too often we've used this verse, misquoted it and misused it and say, oh, this is all about coming to Christ. That Jesus is standing at your heart door and he's knocking and you need to invite him in. Well, that's not what this verse is about. It has nothing to do with the context of it. It's written to Christians Christians who have settled for a worldly life, one of lots of stuff and little spiritual life. And Jesus says to these people, his people, what's he saying? There's more. He says there is a life lived as a Christian that is greater 
than anything the world can offer. He says, you've traded life with God for stuff in the world. I'm telling you, he says, repent, come back, because what I offer is so much greater than what the world offers. Jesus stands at the Christian's heart door and knocks and calls. And what he's saying is, Mark, do you want more? Do you want a life lived in a real relationship with me, a powerful, relevant, abiding relationship with me, where the word picture he uses to describe it is like this, where we actually dine together? He describes a relationship. He said, I'll come in and I'll have dinner with you. Meaning, we'll be connected. He isn't saying that those who don't open the door invite him in, that life. He's not saying they're not Christians. He doesn't say that here. He is saying that no Christian needs settle for such a subpar spiritual life. That's what he's saying. He's saying there is more. Friends, this is the same um, thought that Paul in Ephesians is praying that Christians will experience. It's the same exact idea. He's praying for the same thing. And he uses language the best he can to try to express it. He prays, look at what he prays for. He prays in Ephesians. We're back in Ephesians now. He prays for an inner strength that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. He's saying, listen, there's more of the Spirit. Think about something with me today. You maybe never thought of this before because we're so easily distracted by the stuff that the world offers that's second best, but it looks good. Think about this. Of all the things that could be of great value in this world, could anything be more desirable and more valuable than to have, um, than to have, than to have an inner strength that comes from Christ dwelling in you? Could anything on the planet be more valuable than having an inner strength, a calmness, a joy, a love, an inner strength that comes from Christ dwelling in you? I don't think there's anything greater on the planet. I don't think a weekend away or a week away or a month away at any place could compare to having that. Nothing greater. So over the past couple of weeks, I've done this and some of you have done this with me. We have walked with a number of people from this church family and, and a few outside as they have faced some of the greatest struggles that they'll ever face. And, and many of them would be professing Christians. Matter of fact, as I think I mentioned earlier, you know, we faced six immediate deaths in our church in the last two weeks. You know, uh, three people who regularly attended church. You know, uh, one who was in a nursing home and, and two precious little infants. All in the last two weeks. And as I watched these families walk through this time, some strong Christians with an abiding relationship with Jesus, some not, but professing and describing themselves to me as, well, I'm a, one lady said, well, as I talked about her faith, well, I'm a bad Catholic. I'm not exactly sure what that meant, but she was describing her relationship as weak. And I walked with these, watched these families as I walked with them, and in one case, the person himself was dying, we walked with for five weeks, a couple times a week, in a hospice center and talked to this 44-year-old Sheila, whose funeral was here yesterday. Walked walk through this time of death with them all. And I can tell you, at that time, when life is reduced to its most important essentials, and that's what those situations do, they boil life down to all that really matters. 
Jet skis don't matter then. Nothing wrong with them. I'm just saying, I don't know why they can't. Those things don't matter. My Matthew solo cam doesn't matter then, which is my really nice bow I shoot. It doesn't matter. The car you drive doesn't matter. Those things, life is reduced to its most essential elements. The thing that was most important in all these situations was an inner strength that comes from Christ dwelling in them. That was the most important thing. Some had it, and it was apparent, and some didn't. And it was apparent. Some yelled at Suzanne and I when we came, because they were hurting. They would yell and and take it out on you, and some blessed you, and blessed God and walked through it. The difference was an abiding strength from the Holy Spirit within them. Those who had it had something so much more than those who didn't have it. Church, that's what Paul is praying for. Paul is praying for, for all of us, is that we would live our lives for a real and powerful life in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, that would be our greatest passion in our lives, would be to be abiding with Christ, filled with His Spirit. That is what he would ask him, that's what he asked God to grant these Christians above everything else. That he would ask that we would be open, that, that like these people, he's saying, God, would they open the door to Christ's very real presence and never settle for a life where he is at arm's length or just outside the door. That's what he's praying for here for these people. He lines up with John and he says, listen, don't let Jesus sit outside. There's a great life available for you if you will open the door and let him in. And again, it's not talking about salvation. It's saying you can live your Christian life at a subpar spiritual level, but God's saying, I got more for you where this Christian life really gets exciting. And it's really real. It's not empty religion, but it's, but it's reality. It's love and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know? This is what I would ask him to grant us as Christian people above everything else that we would open the door to Christ's very real presence and never settle for a life where he is outside, at arm's length. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know about him. That's what Paul's asking for. And Paul goes on to pray then. He said, if we really have Christ in us by the power of the Spirit, look what will happen. He says, we invite him in. What will really happen? He says, then we will be able to more fully grasp and experience the love of Christ. Paul tries to express this, you know, with, with you know, this undescribableness of the love of God, of Christ. He says, it'd be able to experience that it has a breadth and a length and a height and a depth. I don't even know what he's trying to say there. He's just saying, it's beyond words. I can't express it. It's this undescribable love of God. But if you will invite Christ in, and you're a believer, and say, yes, I want you to be the core, that then there's this thing that comes in, that you have the presence of this Lord, you will experience his love in dimensions that you, I can't even describe. And he says, get this way, he says, it surpasses knowledge. He says, I can't describe it. He says, undescribable. His prayer is that we would be filled up with his amazing love towards us. Are we getting the prayer here that he's praying? This is the reason I see the big picture. Next week we'll look at a little more detail. The big picture. He prays that we would have more. He prays that we would hunger for more. That we would never settle for just saying, oh, I go to church. 
or I got saved. I have fire insurance that's going to get me to heaven someday and keep me out of hell. We've never settled for that, that mediocre, subpar kind of Christian existence. That we would live in the wonder of a real relationship with Jesus. That's what he's trying to get at. That's what he's praying for. That's what he's writing to these people. My question as we wrap up today is this. Is that what you want? Inner strength and abiding love. Is that what you want? Do you want it more than you want the jet ski? Do you want it more than you want the, the lake cottage or whatever? And again, you can't, it's not that you can't have both, but do you want it more? If you do want it more, then you, what you need to do is you need to push aside your other pursuits and make a relationship with Jesus your number one desire and pursuit. An abiding relationship where you're saying, Lord, fill me with your presence. And you know the difference. There's a difference between just saying, yeah, it's important and my life is based on this. That I actually change how I live and act in order to position myself in a way that I interact with the Spirit of the Lord. One of the ways you, you, you took your Sunday morning to come here and interact with the Holy Spirit. But you've got to push aside other pursuits. Not because they're evil, but because they're not the best. That's what he's getting at here. So friends, if your desire is for this, this gift of more inner strength and abundant love, then start right now by, in a moment when we close in prayer, by just telling Jesus that you're opening up the door of your life so that he can come all the way in and he can dwell in the center of your life. And you're saying this, maybe another way to say it, I'm all in, God. I'm all in. You give yourself without reservation to him and you say, fill me with your presence, fill me with your spirit. Stand with me this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, I think I can speak for us as a church, maybe not across the board, but for most, in saying this, we really do want more. Lord, I see this this offer made in Scripture. And I say, it looks wonderful. But Lord, then I walk through the couple weeks like I've walked through and I see it in people's lives and I say, it is wonderful. That there's an abiding strength and peace that comes with you being the core. Being people full of your Spirit. Not holding you at arm's length. And so, Lord, right now, we ask you, fill us with the reality of your presence by your Spirit. As we open up our hearts, Lord, let us experience your goodness and your grace. Lord, maybe there's some things that we need to set aside. Maybe there's some things we've got to give up. Maybe we've got to give up four hours of TV every night so we can spend some time sitting with you looking through our day and figuring out where you were and where you are. Spending some time in your word. Maybe, maybe there's some more. And again, you're not condemning us. You're just saying, make, make a good trade. Make a good trade. Invite me in. Because I have more. Lord, every one of our lives are different. And I would ask that you would show us. Show us what it means to seek after more for our own personal lives. 
Show us what it means to seek after more for our corporate life. Lord, I pray that next Saturday this place will be filled as we pray together as a church family. People saying, I want more. Now before I release you to pray, simply ask this question. Maybe you're here today. You've never taken the first step of coming to Jesus. We've been talking about people saying, I am in Christ, but but there's more. You say you've never taken the first step in coming to Christ. You've never really opened up your heart and said, Jesus, come in and be my Savior, my Lord, forgive me of my sins, all that stuff we talked about in communion. Maybe during communion even, you said, Jesus, come in. Come into my life. But you're here today and something's going on inside your heart and you're saying, I know I need to begin my life in Christ. I want to give you a opportunity to solidify that just to to respond to that sense that you have because according to the Bible that sense that you have is the Holy Spirit that he's calling you by name he's pulling you to himself I just want to give you an opportunity to respond I'm not going to call you out I'm not going to embarrass you but I want to give you a chance to do something make make a movement an action that would say yeah I really am all in so as a church, their heads are bowed, or eyes are closed, or is having a private moment. I'm really the only one looking around. You say, Pastor Mark, I want to respond to what I feel inside my heart. I don't have Christ as my Savior, but I want to ask Him in today to be my Lord and my Savior. I don't even sure, sure what that all means, but I want to begin my journey with Jesus today. You want to ask Him into your life. If that's you, I want you to do something bold between you and me and God. No one else will look around. Just raise up your hand. And when I see your hand, I'm going to ask you to put it down say right now I want to ask Christ into my life alright you can put it down anybody else because we're going to have a corporate prayer in a minute alright I'm going to ask our whole church those of you who have raised your hands I want you just to join in this prayer I'm going to ask our whole church to just join me in a prayer there's nothing magical about the words we're simply going to talk to the Lord and if you raise your hand I want you to, to pray this prayer with all meaning and what you're simply doing is you're asking God to, to come into your life. So pray with us this way. Dear Jesus, we need you. And today, I invite you into my life. Today, Lord, I turn to you. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. On this day, I'm turning away from my old life. I ask you to wash it away. I wash you to for, I ask you to forgive my sins. I ask you to make me brand new. And so today I receive you as my savior and my lord. And now Jesus, fill me with your spirit so that I have the strength to live with you.